We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and joining me today is a very special guest, Guy Morris. Retired from a 38-year executive career with Fortune 100 Software, High Tech, and Global Energy, Guy Morris has also been a published songwriter for Disney Records, a patented inventor, a Coast Guard charter captain, an adventurer, and now a self-published author of thrillers. From cartel death threats in Latin America to the shark diving in Morea, from a boardroom to a recording studio, from child homelessness to corporate jets, Guy pulls from a rich life of diverse experience to write books that thrill, educate, and inspire thoughtful dialogue on genuine issues facing humanity. Since his 2021 debut, Guy has released three pulse-pounding thrillers inspired by true stories, actual technologies, global politics, and history. His Kirkus-recommended books have earned Booktrib's Best 25 Books of 2021, Reader's Favorite Gold and Silver Awards, finalist for IAN Book of the Year, and semi-finalist for Cinematic Book. His articles have been published in SD Voyager and Mystery and Suspense magazines. In early 2022, he formed the nonprofit Author Event Network Association, where local accomplished authors collaborate to sign books at community events and festivals to engage readers, build platforms, and sell more books at higher margins. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. I'm so excited to be here. So we connected on Podmatch when you Mm -hmm. reached out about discussing your book, The Curse of Cortez. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a brief synopsis of your book? The Curse of Cortez is a modern day thriller that Mm -hmm. dives into the mystery of a true billion dollar abandoned plunder of Henry Morgan. Why Henry Morgan went insane and burned his logbooks to keep the world from knowing why he had abandoned it. And now what went missing with that plunder was 600 souls and three ships. And then most importantly, how I connected Morgan's insanity all to events that led me all the way back to the origins of the Mayan creation myth. It took me 12 years to research the history, the archaeology, and the Mayan mythology that went into that story. So this book, which I read and like devoured, it was like a page turner, was a fascinating read that I had a really hard time putting down. What inspires you to write it? My son. At the time that I first started researching it, I was a single parent. I worked really long hours. And so the only time I got to spend with my son was basically over dinner and and for a bedtime story. And so we would read stories every night. And of course, as any 11-year-old boy would, he loved pirates and treasure, Mm -hmm. lost civilizations and ghosts and things that went boom. And you could just basically know what he's going to love. And we would go to the library and, and he would get several books and bring them home. And by Thursday or Friday, he'd be kind of done with them. And so I was always wondering how he was reading so fast. He kept swearing he was reading all the books, but he would want more. <laughs> and that would be the, the sign. He would want more. And so I wrote a first book because I had a lot of time in my hands 
and I'm not much of a TV watcher, I wanted to be productive. And so I decided, well, I'm going to write him a short story. And it was called Paolo and the Shark. In, in essence, it was sort of like an old man in the sea, but for a 10, 12-year-old boy and sure. based in the Caribbean of 300 years ago. Part of the story opened up a mystery, and I never really solved the mystery in that book. And so he was always asking me about the mystery was what was going on in those caves. And there was some scenes in the caverns of the book that intrigued him. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write a, a follow-up. But this mm -hmm. time, I want him to learn some history. And so I'm going to go research real history. I'm going to research real historical mysteries of pirates in the Caribbean in that era and try and mm -hmm. come up with something that I could base the story on that would have some factual foundations. And mm -hmm. I thought, and that's, those are the kind of books I love as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Hardy Boy mysteries and all of that kind of stuff, the Agatha Christie's are all great and they're a lot of fun and they're mesmerizing to read. But mm -hmm. there's always a part of me that says, well, this is just pretend, right? And so yeah. I wanted to find something real. And so I spent the, a year or, or, or more, a couple of years maybe, researching history books until I found one that just, not only did I think it would resonate for my son, I was intrigued. So this is the history part that comes in. In 1671-72, Henry Morgan, who was already one of the most successful privateers in history, Mm -hmm. set out with 36 ships and 2,000 men to raid the city of Panama. The city of Panama was on the Pacific side of the Panamanian Isthmus, which made it a difficult adventure, but it was the richest city in the New World. All of the gold and, and riches from the Inca Empire were stored in Panama. Gems, jewels, minerals from Colombia, Ecuador were stored in Panama. Gold, silver, spices, food from Mexico were stored in Panama. And most importantly, and the most valuable resources was the opening up of the Orient. Chinese silks, musks, ox musks, elephant musks, Japanese carvings, Japanese and Chinese pottery, Ming Dynasty pottery. All of this stuff was coming over in giant Spanish galleons. One of them called the Santissimo de Trinidad, which comes up later in the story from the Philippines and Asia. And they were priceless in Europe. And so Morgan decided that he was just going to go after the city and just capture the whole city. So he sends one ship to basically guard the harbor, a ship called the Kagway, to keep any ships from leaving the harbor as they came in. He lost over a thousand men just getting over the jungles of Panama in the middle of winter when it was raining and there were snakes and spiders and indigenous peoples who would ambush them. But when he, with less than a thousand men, he raided the city of Panama. Somehow it caught fire, burnt to the ground in a day. He conquered the city, stayed for four months, torturing residents who survived, find their hidden caches. He ultimately got back with 35 tons, 700 mules worth of plunder, and 600 slaves. But when they got back to their fleet, which was still anchored on the Caribbean side of the Isthmus, mm -hmm. he cheated all of his men. He gave them each a couple hundred pieces of gold each, which was nothing compared to the 35 tons that they had, mm -hmm. and then basically disappeared with everything on three ships, none of it ever seen again. But Morgan survived. Four months later, he shows up with his ship, and it was empty, it was battered, it was beaten, his skeleton crew were half starving to death, shows up back in Port Royal, Jamaica, and he's immediately arrested by the British. Or he mm -hmm. probably would have been killed by the remaining men. 
The reason sure. he was arrested was because while he was gone in Panama, raiding Panama, England and Spain had signed a peace treaty. And so this broke the peace treaty. And so he spent three years in house arrest in London, where he regaled the locals with all of his tales of conquering the Spanish and all of these tales of conquering cities. He was ultimately found not guilty. He was knighted by King Charles II as Sir Henry Morgan and sent back to Jamaica as a lieutenant governor with a full garrison of soldiers to get rid of piracy. But instead of going after any pirates except one man, the captain of the Cagway, who was guarding the harbor, who betrayed him, except for going after that one man, he held up on his plantation, went into this haunted, drunken debauchery, burned his logbooks to keep the world from knowing the truth. Three years after he died, the whole city of Port Royal sinks into the ocean. At the time, locals of the time said they had been cursed by Morgan. I read that history, and I read it again and again and again. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute here. There, there's a whole two or three stories behind this one story. What happened to 600 souls and three ships and 35 tons of plunder? It had to go someplace. Yeah. It didn't sink. Morgan's boat was fine. It was empty. That's where most of the treasure was. Somehow it got offloaded. He never wanted to say where or why or how. And then what happened to 600 souls and three ships? Somebody had to have found something by now. Mm -hmm. And then what was it about that experience that traumatized Morgan so deeply that he would give up a billion dollar plunder? He had already killed thousands of people to get mm -hmm. and wuss out about it. So he did not want to tell the world about why he was wussing out. I kept thinking, and then why did the locals think he was cursed as opposed to just a greedy SOB? Mm -hmm. I couldn't put the story down, and I began researching. I began researching everything about Morgan. I began wanting to say, well, where are all the places he was documented ever to have been? Where are all the islands who think they claim they had Morgan gold on them? Can I go to those islands and validate the story? Can I look at that and say, well, does it fit with the facts? Many of these mm -hmm. islands, Morgan left his treasure here, but it's just a sand pit. I said, well, no, Morgan's not going to dig a pit for 35 tons of stuff. And that pit's yeah. not going to be big enough for 600 souls and three ships. There has yeah. to be caverns involved. And so I went through this logical process. For years, I would follow one thread, and I would either reach a dead end, or I would open up 100 more questions. Mm -hmm. And so it ultimately led me to an island called Roatan. And this island was special. And I'm getting way ahead of myself. but that No, was, no, it's good. Well, I can go more about the island. So, okay, I can see it in your face. This <laughs> island, for one reason, is that 30 years before Morgan had conquered Panama, his mm -hmm. uncle, Edward Morgan, had conquered this island. The island originally was, it's off the shores between Belize and Honduras, right at the mouth of the Cayman Trench. It's a volcanic set of islands that have been there for thousands of years, geology of them is that they were originally landbound. They were basically connected to the land until the oceans rose. And so okay. it was basically a coastal volcanic town. And this island was populated by the indigenous populations who had revered it. It was a pilgrimage. When the Spanish came in 1532, they massacred or deported everybody on the island or turned the remaining people into slaves. And they turned the island into a fort to guard the coastlines. The island before that had been a pilgrimage for thousands of years. The Spanish never bothered to find out why people were canoeing 50 miles in the open ocean to go to this island. What was so special about the island? Yeah. But that was the same island that 
Morgan's uncle conquered and turned it into a raging pirate base, maybe as many estimates of 5,000 pirates, merchants, and prostitutes basically populating the island. And it's actually a small chain of islands. It's not just one landmass. And so there's smaller islands to the east and to the north that are unpopulated even to this day. And several of them contain large caverns. Many of them contain dangerous reefs. Some of them have underwater caves. In the 1960s, a road was discovered cut into the coral reefs. And this road extended out from Central America, Belize, directly out for well over a mile and a half before it sunk so deep they couldn't trace it anymore. That road led in the direction of Burlacan Island. And so there were all these clues to say, well, what was the ancient history of this? And so today mm -hmm. there are the, the number of the people who still live on the island, the wave of different cultures they had. First, it was the indigenous Maya, then it was the Spanish, then it was the English and the Dutch and the French, Portuguese, a culture called the Garifuna, which were escaped slaves from the Eastern Caribbean who basically fled to the Western Caribbean for freedom. So the Garifuna mm -hmm. population is still very strong on the island. So it's really got an interesting cultural mix. But the local Garifuna who live at the far east end of this island refuse to this very day. No one will take you to certain caverns because they're reported to be deadly with snakes, scorpions, mm -hmm. spiders, old bones in them from other people. And they're said mm -hmm. to be haunted by evil spirits. So all over time, I'm putting all of this together. Now, one of the clues that I had when all my research and the biographies and all the books I read about Morgan, one clue, and it was less than a paragraph, caught me. Morgan was hyper superstitious. Okay. All of the mythology of the Mayans, all of the gods, the names, the way they characterized their stuff would terrify many of the Spanish and the English when they first got to Mesoamerica because it was so foreign to them from their artistry and their depictions of their gods and their demons. And so mm -hmm. I started hypothesizing, is it possible that Morgan, because Morgan knew this island well, his uncle had conquered it. He was a pirate. He had been on the island several times, knew the island extremely well, knew the outer islands where you could anchor a ship and nobody would really see it from the main island. Mm -hmm. So he knew of all the places to go. And as it turns out, when I did the archaeology research, there were some ancient Mayan or pre-Mayan artifacts on the island that now have disappeared. But they weren't Mayan. They were pre-Mayan. They were ancient. They were almost too old to read. And there were markers on one of these outer islands. This is the clincher. In 1911, a British explorer who was really not much more than a grave robber treasure hunter named F.A. Mitchell Hedges, excavated on this island. Now, Hedges is famous, primarily famous, for finding the crystal skull. And he found the crystal skull less than 50 miles away in Honduras, right across the bay, supposedly. Okay. But Morgan spent seven years on this particular island, digging on one of these outer caves. And he dug up According to older records, thousands of pieces of old artifacts, potteries and things broken and mainly shattered stuff. But he claimed at one point that after several years that he had found Atlantis. He had found the civilization. Well, everyone at the time laughed him to scorn. Of course, Atlantis was being found everywhere from the Bahamas to, yeah. to the Azores to everywhere. And so mm -hmm. not a lot of people put a lot of credit into this. But... 
a few months after that, Mitchell Hedges disappeared from the island. Now, many people on the island thought that he had died. They thought that he had fallen into the ocean. Maybe he went into one of these caverns and didn't come out. They didn't know. They just know that he disappeared. A few months later, however, unbeknownst to the islanders, Morgan showed up in New York with $6 million at the time, which is closer to like $250, $280 million today, of newly smelted gold. So he had gone someplace, smelted down the original format of the gold to a new bars. And when they asked him where he found the gold, he lied to them. He told them that he and a friend named Dr. Bell were walking along the beach. Their compasses went crazy. And when they dug in the sand, they found the gold in crates. And when it was pointed out to him that gold is not magnetic, there could have been 10 tons down there. It would have done nothing to his compass. He said, well, that's mm -hmm. my story. I'm sticking with it. He went to England with his money, bought a castle, and wrote his memoir. His memoir called Danger, My Ally. And in his memoir, he talks about all the places he went except for two places, where he found the crystal skull and where he found the gold on Rota. Interesting. He was terrified to talk about what had happened, where he had found it, and what made him so filthy rich. I could not put that story down. It took me years. And then I started realizing, well, this had something to do with the Maya. So I started studying mm -hmm. the archaeology of the islands and how they had formed and how long ago they were above water. I started looking at when did they first get populated from what we can figure out. I started looking at the topology of the underlying waterways, where the reefs were and how shallow was this bay going out to the water. I started looking at how that connected to the game and trench and what geologic plate tectonics factors might have pushed the island someplace different than where it used to be years ago. Sure. I started trying to look for a cause for the flooding, and I start looking at their mythology of their creation myth. Now, that was another big thing for me. In the Mayan mythology of creation, they claim that the earth, now when, let me put it this way, when Hernan Cortez showed up in Mexico in 1519, mm -hmm. they claimed that they were on the fourth epoch of the world that the world had been created and destroyed three previous times, and they were on the fourth epoch. Now, okay. many people didn't know what that meant. But in my mind, it means their fourth count of the long count calendar, which is 5,126 years long, an extraordinarily long time for a calendar. Sure. This is supposedly an agricultural society. I know they're not planning crop rotations out for 5,000 years. So sure, I always yeah. wondered if it was the purpose of why they had a calendar that long. And I ultimately discovered it. But with that, and their, their mythology said that they had been created and destroyed three times. Now, to simplify those processes, in the first creation, it says the people were made of mud. But that because they couldn't hold their form, they basically dissolved and were forgotten. Okay. I realized, though, by looking at other archaeological studies of Latin America, what the mythology was saying was not that the people themselves were made of mud, but that their architecture and their dwellings and their the evidence of their society was mud-based, which is exactly okay. what we find when we go back in history to the archaeology studies of northern South America and Central America. Then the second form of people were made of wood. Now, the wooden people were better than the mud people, but because they didn't worship God, 
their place was destroyed, and this was key, by a great fire followed by a great flood. Okay. Then the third people basically found culture. They built cities, blah, blah, blah. That was the culture that, and then the fourth culture was the one that, was, that basically inherited that. Or third one, I can't remember why they were destroyed, but they were destroyed for a reason too. So I started saying, well, this is interesting. We have another flood myth. Mm-hmm. But in this flood myth, there's a fire first. So I started looking to say, well, is there any geologic evidence of such an event? Mm-hmm. And there is. 12,900 years ago, an asteroid hit that started the Younger Dryas event. The asteroid supposedly hit in Canada on the Florent Ice Sheets uh, north of Quebec. They do have a suppression there in the ground. It wasn't as pronounced as you would expect a meteor impact to look like, but it was covered at that point with a, almost a mile worth of ice. So you're sure. going to get a mile's worth of ice basically distorting this meteorotic pressure. It was exactly at that time, though, that we saw the Missoula Lake basically dissolve, the ice lake there dissolve and, and create channels that went out through Oregon. It was when the oceans rose roughly about 400 feet over the next several hundred years. It basically caused great fires, and we, we know the fires because we can find the charcoal map in the earth all the way down to Colombia. Mm-hmm. So fires across all of North America through Colombia that destroyed everything else and that raised the oceans. And these fires, there's studies that talk about when the asteroid hit the ice sheets that it sent off huge amounts of debris in the form of chunks of ice as big as stadiums and that they hit the oceans, they hit the the South Carolina bays, that it would have caused broader havoc at the time. And Mm -hmm. I started realizing that the mythology was based on that particular event. And then I started just theorizing. And it was factual that the island of Roatan did exist at that time, but it wasn't an island. It was a wetland shoreline mountain range. Okay. And so if that were the case, it would have experienced some of the worst of this North American heat wave and then tsunami wave hitting the island. And what if that was the foundation for the mythology? And what if the reason why the locals were terrified of these locations under these caverns underneath is because it was the remnants of that ancient civilization that was destroyed? Sure. That would have terrified a hyper superstitious man. Mm-hmm. Terrified him. And so I thought, well, at least I have a plausible scenario that seems to add up to the facts. So then I had the real challenge. How do I turn this amazing story into an even better one? That was when I had to go do more research. I had to go discover the people. I had to get in tune with the culture. I had to get inside a few of their heads. I met some amazing characters. I'm going to ask you about two characters, and I want you to tell me what you think about the two characters of the book. The first character is Chico. What did you think of Chico? Okay, now you're going to have to remind me who Chico was. Chico was the... The seaplane pilot. The seaplane pilot. Okay. I thought Chico was very interesting because he's he was the one that was high all the time. <laughs> yep. I met Chico when I went on a dive, a remote sea dive, looking for some of the remnants of some of the things that I was I was writing about. And I remember walking out of the terminal, the little small beach terminal, and looking toward the dock and seeing a seaplane floating next to the dock. And this little guy, think of a guy that reminds you of, uh, do you ever watch Jimmy Kimmel? Yes. 
So think of Guillermo uh, meets Snoop Dogg. Okay. All right. Um, I can picture that. <laughs> spell him from the terminal. My first thought was, and his plane, I was surprised it was floating, much less could fly. My first thought was walking out of the terminal. It was, okay, well, I'm single. I guess I've, I've got insurance for the kids. I, this is how I die. This is how I go. <laughs> how I go. So after a couple of flights with Chico, I had to put him in the book. And then one of the other characters in the book that came from real life, well, there was a couple more, but one of the really interesting ones was Shea Golan. Now, if you recall, Shea Golan was the thug for the came, the evil guy, the bad guy. Yep, yep. So the real Shea Golan is also based on a real person. Okay. So the real Shea Golan was an Israeli fugitive. He was wanted by Interpol. He was wanted by the FBI. He was doing dirty work for the Zeta cartel when he broke into my condo in Cancun. And when I confronted him, he threatened to kill me if I messed with him. Okay. Well, I grew up on the streets of LA. I'm a really nice guy. That triggered me. And so yeah. I, I basically told him to his face that he didn't have the cojones. I didn't use those words to, to mess with me. I wasn't the gringo he wanted to mess with. He, he had two days to get out of my condo or his, his world would change. And, well, he puffed and puffed. And, and so I immediately went in and cut off all of his power. I cut off his elevator. And we were 14 floors up. It was a private elevator. I cut off his gas. I cut off the phone. I cut off any access, anything that could basically make his life decent at 14 floors. Well, we spent three months with him basically sending me daily pictures of a new hole in the wall that he had just made to try and <laughs> punish me for trying to push him out. I ultimately flew down to Cancun a few more times to kind of meet with a number of things to figure out how I get rid of this rat. And by law, there wasn't much I could do except take him to court, and that would take as much, many as three years. And cost yeah. him probably about to $100,000, which is what he was banking on. Yeah. Well, I just didn't want to let him win that way. So ultimately, I even went one night, I, was, I met with a cartel representative, a Zeta cartel hitman in the alleyway behind the Kinkos in downtown Cancun. Crazy. And where Jose told me that for 25K, they would take Shea out to the jungle and no one would ever find him. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe something a little less lethal. Yeah. I talked to the FBI and they said, if I can get him over the border, they'll arrest him, but they can't arrest him in Mexico. So they said, well, wow, but to get him to the border, man, that's a lot more work. That's a lot more trouble. I said, we'll need 50K. I thought, well, okay, let me let me think about that. It's a little out of my price range. So <laughs> I ultimately bribed the police. I think it was 12K to basically actually do their job and go arrest this guy because he had made violent threats. Well, they screwed it. They didn't arrest him, but they did get me back to condo. So I went in, I took all of his stuff, his hookah and pipes and liquor and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And even his like huge safe. And I took everything and I put it in garbage bags and I put it out on the, on the street. Mm -hmm. Within 24 hours, the locals had ravaged everything he owned, including the safe. So he was furious. He wound up getting busted by the police ultimately anyway, mm -hmm. in a stolen Hummer with a gun charge. He spent six months in jail. He had to pay $50,000 to get out of jail. The last time I saw him, he was driving a beat-up junker car because I had already contacted every dealer in the Yucatan and every hotel, every apartment building, every condo building, anybody where there was any place to stay 
with his picture, his profile, his police record, and the way he basically conned people. And so I cut him off. So sure. he was living in a really crappy part of town, driving a really beat up car. So that was Shagalar. I messed with him once in Cancun. I wanted to put him in the book and mess with him again so I can get my Cooper in life. He reminded me of like, kind of like a bumbling henchman. That's kind of what he was. Like he thought he was really high up on the food chain, but really he was just like a buffoon. Then I painted him well. <laughs> yes, that's exactly how he came well. across. You know, so it was a great adventure for me just to understand the real story behind this, the story. But I wanted more of an emotional hook. Mm -hmm. I wanted Sophia to be dealing with the issues of stigma. I wanted her to be dealing with the issues of hopelessness in her romance life. I wanted her to see this curse as a dark cloud on her family and her life and her name. And I wanted her to really kind of rise above that and find the courage to do that, find the courage within herself. And I had to take her through, push her through a really intense ordeal to do that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to connect the dots between things like family insanity and inheritance and that our life isn't what we inherit. Our life is what we make it. And mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of do this in a way that would be a, a great blockbuster movie, but also yeah. with a lot of emotional hook, a lot of emotional mm -hmm. pull. I tried to have characters that were vulnerable, that they weren't just superheroes on the treasure hunt and you know unafraid yeah. of anything. I wanted this to be not intentionally after treasure. I wanted it to be after a deeper truth. And so I had to send Sophia on a quest. And to do that, I had to shock her out of her work. So it started off with some deep shocks, mm -hmm. but it forced her to really find the family history and look at it more closely. Now, the other aspect of the story, the character of Cortez, also based on the research that I did. In the age of Spanish conquest, mm -hmm. the half-breeds at the time, the Mesitos, were considered like all traditional cultures did. Half-breeds were not considered very well. Yeah. And so the Mesitos were no different. And the Cortez character is based on the illegitimate son of the illegitimate brother of one of the conquistador generals, Pedro de, de Abrado, who was the conquistador general of Guatemala. And when Diego, his brother, died in battle in Peru, his illegitimate son would have been sent, like all Masita boys, were sent to the monastery at Mani, the Franciscan monastery. Mm -hmm. These were very harsh men who lived yeah. a very rigid, harsh, I would almost say cruel form of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And the real story is, is that one day, two of the boys from Mani were wandering in the foothills around North Guatemala, Southern Mexico, and they stumbled onto a cave which had hundreds of Mayan relics and idols and things that were supposedly were forbidden by the Spanish culture and the church. And so these boys became sort of poster boys for what became the Yucatan Inquisition. The bishop, Diego de Landa, was just a horrifically pious, evil man and mm -hmm. wanted to basically purge all of these old demonic idols from the new land. And sure. so they wound up burning all of these and destroying all of these artifacts. Well. That basically kicked off the Inquisition with the Landa in the Yucatan. And what would happen is that because the priest, and it's some of the most horrific, there's a book called Ambivalent Conquest. And it okay. talks, it chronicles the uh, Spanish 
conquest and all of, and the Inquisition. And it chronicles some of the most horrific tortures that you could possibly imagine. Some of the ones I act, not all of them, but just a few of them I picked into the final pieces of the book. And I tried to get into the head of this orphaned boy who was taken from his mother, sent to this monastery, taught just enough how to read and write to be useful to the monks, mm -hmm. finding a cache of Mayan relics, thinking he's going to do a good deed that's going to win him favor by telling the monks and the priests about mm -hmm. this, and then ultimately years later being inducted to be the executioner to this whole thing. Yeah. Where yeah. he's torturing his own people just so that they will confess another cache of sacred idols, just so that they can push this purge forward even farther. Yeah. And the amount of psychological damage that that would have done to that individual. Yeah. And so I put myself, I tried to kind of get into that mindset. And that was where Montego de Abrado Cortez is the character. And he was where the book, The, the Curse, came from. It was his life. It was his observations. It was his being caught in between the middle of the old life, the old world and the new world, mm -hmm. being seduced into being the worst of the abuses of that new world towards the old world and the amount of guilt and shame that would have accumulated in a man like that. The curse had to come from someplace and I yep. could not find any place historically rooted that had a better foundation. Yeah. So that was my journey. Tell me about how the, the final product came out for you. <laughs> well, in preparing to talk to you today, I went on your website and you have this page that kind of details what's fact versus fiction in the book and like the research you did. And I was extremely surprised to see just how much of it is actual fact. Like it's, it's based on actual fact. And one thing I really liked about the book was the flow was very interesting. Can you explain a little bit what the Mayan cha is to our listeners and like how that was used in the book for like the flow? About the... The cha? Oh, the cha. The cha, wow, I had forgotten I'd incorporated that part. The Mayan cha is essentially their, their equinox, their day. It's, it's essentially what we would call the solstice. And I used it essentially as just a time clock yep. in the book that you don't know exactly what's going to happen on this date. You're given a little bit of a glimpse as to what it's, the cha is, that it's a celebration. It's like a solstice celebration, but it's very big in their culture. That's where we get the maypole from and a number of other things that we hear about here. I wanted to have a time clock, that there's something that's ticking down, that we don't have all day, we don't have all year, we don't have a lifetime to find this treasure and to solve this mystery. There's something that's going to happen that's pushing us forward. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to use that, and that was for the antagonist. It was an event that he was going to use. And I don't want to do a spoiler, but it was an event that he yeah. was going to use to change the world in Latin America in such a way that would give him an advantage over everyone to lead the, the entire continent. Yep. It's, it was a very fancy countdown to a coup. But I used it because it affected the mentality of the people from the Mayan culture and the Hispanic culture. It allowed for news broadcasts and other larger scope governmental events and dignitaries to have reasons to be participating in these events. It became mm -hmm. sort of the candy that you're drawing or the light that you're drawing the moths to. Yes. That will be their own destruction. That will basically change the histories from the old history to the new history in a blink of an eye. I wanted this curse to be broader than just what was happening with the family. 
was to try and see how it might radiate outwards in the other people that it would affect. And so the Punkane character, Punkane was one of the gods of the Mayans, who was one of the evil gods. He was basically one of the lords of the underworld who controlled other lords. And so that became sort of the, uh, just as the, many of the narco cultures will pull from their Mayan heritage for some of their cultural aspects and some of their naming and some of their traditions, I wanted to create and mimic that within the, the narco lord that was behind that name. But more so than a narco lord, somebody, just as we see other sociopathic geniuses go from small-time criminal to masterminds of huge enterprises, I wanted to reflect that genius in him as well as the madness. And that's, again, to reflect what's really going on in Latin America today, where some of the cartels have essentially taken over police. They've essentially taken over aspects of the government. They've either bribed or intimidated enough people where they have control. And so the governments themselves don't really necessarily even feel in control all the time. They're afraid mm -hmm. to confront these forces because of how well-armed they are, ironically, from American gun manufacturers, which is a completely different topic I didn't touch on. But I wanted to immerse the reader more into the Mayan culture by using that as the time scale. Now, the other aspect of that, when you're looking at creation myths, at one point in my mind, I said, well, if I'm looking at the Mayan concept of creation, what is the Mayan concept of the end of the world look like? Mm -hmm. What happens when this, oh, I don't think I, I mentioned, I think I forgot a, a point. It finally dawned on me that this 5,126 year long calendar that's in the, the culture going back. Yeah. The last time they had it start was in 3,114 BC. That was the one that ended the, cult, the, the calendar that ended in 2012 that had all the hoopla. I yeah. finally realized that when the Mayan prophecies were talking about epochs, the three epochs of the creation, they were talking about cycles of this 5,126 year long calendar. So that was how they counted ancient time. We might say 10 millennia. We might say, you know, 10 centuries. We might say a millennia. We might count it different ways. That was mm -hmm. their actual big count of numbers. And through that, they said the world changed dramatically through these time periods, right? And we mm -hmm. can see that historically. If we go back 5,000 years, the world was really different than if we go back to 5,000 before that and 5,000 before that. Yep. What it did do is it pushed me into realizing that the Mayan mythology goes back to essentially 18,000 BC when you add all of these numbers up. And that was a conflict for a long time to archaeologists and historians who believe that people did not arrive on the Americas until 12,000, 13,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Since that time, though, when I was a kid, there have been a number of archaeological discoveries that have pushed that timeline back to at least 30,000 years. And by one estimate, based on a dig in San Diego, they think it could go back as much as 100,000 years. So people have been on the Americas far longer than the original 12, 13,000 year estimate. And once that was confirmed, then the date of the Mayan mythology going back was also confirmed, which is an amazing amount of archaeology and history to uncover. But mm -hmm. when we look at the end of their epoch, what happens next? We find a prophet named Chalambalam. Now, Chalambalam was a real guy. He actually was a, the major prophet of the Mayan era 
before the Spanish arrived and actually had a vision of the Spanish in 1492 or something. He had a vision of the Spanish that wouldn't arrive till 1514. So for another 20 years uh, ahead of time, he had a vision of them. And from that vision, Shalom Balam actually went through the empire, collected a lot of his codex, his sacred writings, his sacred rituals, his, his number of things, and created a secret library to keep it safe from this coming scourge. Nobody knows where that library is. I postulate a location in the book, but nobody knows where that library is. And Shalom Balam also had visions of what would happen at the end of the epoch. And it talks about similar things that what we're experiencing today, the rise of chaos, the rise of information, the rise of the ability, you know, and it gave this darker view of what would happen at the end of the epoch. So I wanted to kind of capsulize that in there as well. So we could both see mm -hmm. the creation and the end. We could see how all the pieces fit together. And I wanted our, my characters to basically thrust into the, unwillingly thrust into the middle of the ball. Yeah. Path but finding their own sense. And I wanted to also have there some humor and I wanted to have a little bit of romance and I wanted to have something positive because I didn't want this to end in a negative cursed kind of way. I wanted mm -hmm. there to be a uplifting ending that could give people a chuckle and help them realize that the curse is meaningless. It's it's how we deal with our own life. You know, we're all we all have that curse on our lives. That it's how we're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And so that was that was where that came from. Yeah. So the cha came from was a timeline, but it was one of the things that was able that I used to connect the past the creation myth mythologies to the Shalom Balam end of the world prophecies, and the cha became sort of the vehicle. Yeah, it was an interesting way to interweave all of these sub stories that tie into the main story. So you know you've got. The woman who's trying to expose all of this cartel corruption, and it ties in her with the story of Miguel and the plunderlust and his love interest and the crew, and then Sophia, and then it also ties in with Esteban. And so it's like it pulls in like all these different components, and even, you know, Juan Perez, like quote unquote Juan Perez and yeah. you know his tie in to all these things and it was a very almost like a 24 type of countdown type thing because you as you get closer and closer you start to get a little more anxious like how is this going to resolve like all these things were coming to a head and it was a really fascinating way to break up the story while still like creating this sense of tension and oncoming doom if you if you will. It allowed a central point for all the various stories and, and how they ultimately connected together. Mm -hmm. And now the stories and the people connected together ultimately as well, but that became a very important way for me to use that in a way of increasing tension. Mm -hmm. And right, the closer you got, the more you thought, of, how are they going to get out of this in time? Mm -hmm. And at first it was exactly what's going to happen. And then once you start to get a sense of what's going to happen, you think, well, well, how are they going to possibly stop it? Mm -hmm. right? And honestly, as a writer, that's one of the hardest things that you can do is come up with these really great, tense moments and then have to figure out, how am I going to stop it? <laughs> <laughs> I've set the ball rolling. Now what? <laughs> I hadn't thought that through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
it was a literary challenge for me. This was my first book. I had done many of the research, much of the research on this book while I was still in my career. So it was sort of a part-time passion for me uh, to sure. continue to research and write and write pieces of it and then rewrite. The, the more I would learn about the real story, the more I'd have to rewrite the book. At first, I thought it was just about finding treasure. Then I realized that the treasure was really meaningless. It was really about more of this finding this historical context. And I thought, well, that that's boring for people. It's got to have an emotional pull. So mm -hmm. I probably rewrote this book probably 30 times at least. Oh, wow. Trying to find the, the right tone to bring in that rich, rich, fascinating history. Mm -hmm. Explain this true mystery of a billion dollar lost plunder, but have it in a way that pulls you in in an entertaining way. And so it was it was an exercise for me. It was a, it was my master class of learning how to do, go from research to writer it was um, book trips, favorite 25 books of 2021. They called it Indiana Jones meets Da Vinci Code, which I, I thought was great. Although when I do my signing events, I typically tell people Indiana Jones meets the Goonies for grownups sprinkled with Stephen <laughs> yeah. yeah. That seems to resonate better with people. It was my passion project. It was enormously rewarding to write and research and hone and, and polish. It was one of those unforgettable experiences for me, and I wanted to turn it into an unforgettable book. Well, I think you accomplished that. Thank you. So other than Chico and Shay, are any other characters in your book based off real people? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia, Lucia, August, can't remember some of the other names, All or all names of my grandchildren. Okay. The character of Darcy has, I'm not going to say which elements, but it has elements of my wife. Okay. Um, the redhead, the fiery temper the not letting people get away with stuff, the person who's going to take charge when things are down mm -hmm. just has a, a heart and a soul that kind of comes through all of that. The last scene of the book, and I, don't, I know I'm not going to spoil it for your, the readers, but the, the scene on the yacht and the last scene of the mm -hmm. book actually is based on a real-life experience between Darcy and I. Okay. Including some of the dialogue of the four billion men on the planet and all of that kind of stuff is actually from that experience. And so it was such a funny experience for us that even at the time, a friend of mine who was a film writer, he said, dude, you, you got it. Somehow you got to put this in writing. This is a film or this is a movie scene or something. Yeah. So when I wanted to have a positive way of ending the story, after all of the intensity that I put people through to get mm -hmm. to the end, I wanted to end it in a really uplifting way. And that seemed to fit perfectly. But yeah. most people never know that that scene actually took place in real life, modified, of course, but took sure. place in real life between my wife and I. That's really yeah. cool. We've discussed, you know, like the history about Roatan and like how it, you know, it's no longer part of the mainland, but yet all these pilgrimages had taken place to go to this now island. Do you have any theories on why Mesoamerican tribes would make this pilgrimage? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think to explain it maybe not as well as I could have in the book, but I think that there was a memory of the fact that this was where the survivors were. This was where they were destroyed. This was their link to that mythology of creation. Just as we have pilgrimages for people going back to Israel today to find the place where the nativity scene, right? The church sure. of nativity. We're trying to think mm -hmm. of. We really don't know if that was exactly where that happened. It's yep. 
commemorative. It's sort of like, well, we know it was somewhere around in here. Central Americans would have done the same thing. They said, well, we don't know exactly where this event occurred, but Jilbaba, which is part of the mythology, which is the underwater, underground place of, of death and fear, Jilbaba's populated by snakes and scorpions and ghosts and evil spirits and death and blood and bones, all of the things that you would find in the aftermath of a natural disaster that had been buried by hundreds of feet of ash. Mm -hmm. And we have in other examples, uh, Santorini, which used to be the island of Thera. They have found wholly formed civilizations and buildings and lentils underneath the island of Santorini because when Thera erupted, it basically dumped hundreds of feet of ash. And for thousands of years, it buried this civilization entirely. And so they found mm -hmm. basically intact cities under all of this. So mm -hmm. I was imagining that you might find something. You know, maybe not as advanced, certainly because it was much older, would have been much more Neolithic, but you would have found evidence of that civilization underneath the mountains of Roatan and the caverns of Roatan had you dug more. And so yeah. the idea was that they had found that the pilgrimage, now the marker that was found by the archaeologists 25, 30 years ago that they removed was not actually on the island of Roatan itself, it was actually found on the small island of Isla Barbarata which okay. is where some of it occurs. But again, it didn't really have any, they couldn't really, it had been weathered. They knew it had been carved by somebody for something. They knew it had been weathered, but it was so weathered, they really couldn't read it. So they really didn't study it very much. It was one of those kind of things that was a little blip in the book. But mm -hmm. it, it was an important blip for me because it said that there was a culture there. It explained the pilgrimage. Sure. It explained sure. where the pilgrimage was going and it connected to these other things. So I believe that the pilgrimage to the island was because this was their place of Jobaba. This was their sacred place. And this was the begin, both the end of the old epoch and the beginning of the next. And uh, I think it marked that transition. I mean, that's a postulation on my part. I've never really mm -hmm. could find a definitive answer. Most of the records by the Mayans were destroyed by the Spanish, and the Spanish never bothered to keep records on that. I can identify that the road went out there. I can't identify that there was the ancient markers. And so some of these things are just a little bit too coincidental for them not to line up, but there is a little bit of presumption involved in, in trying to finish connecting those dots. But I think sure. it was because of its history. That makes perfect sense to me. So the artifacts that are sort of like the impetus of this book, mm -hmm. are those based on any actual historical relics, or are they a completely new creation? Somewhat of a new creation. I kind of actually pulled from a couple of different things to get ideas. The Pitunte, which was a sort of clay disc about this big, which actually had markings on it with astrological meaning, is actually based on one found in Mesoamerica that dates okay. back 3000 BC. And it followed the trail of an asteroid landing thousand miles away north of the Black Sea. And okay. it took a long time to figure out what it was actually tracing. It, it showed the intelligence of the people before we had computers and math and drawings and printing sure. presses and everything else, that we were still an incredibly intelligent people who could figure out angles and different things like that. Now, the Mayans from their culture had probably one of the most, and this is true, had one of the most amazing understanding of astrology and astronomy of any other culture. Mm -hmm. 
their version of the universe even had the aspect of the wobbling of the earth. I'm, I'm having a mental block on the name of it. Basically, that cycle of the earth wobbling, which takes about 26,000 years. They actually were down to accurate within a few days. So their calendars, their astronomy was incredibly advanced. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of the reasons or we can't back into their mathematics because we burned so many of their codex. We mm -hmm. essentially burned the knowledge base of an entire civilization out of fear that it was demon possessed somehow. And so mm -hmm. huge tragedy, which I tried to pull out in the book. But I believe that the even back then they were able to track at least a lot of their astronomy and astrology even back that at that age. And we see, you, uh, you've probably seen the newer articles about the um, wall is uh, over a mile long in Colombia. Uh, pictographs basically painted on this mm -hmm. wall over a mile long. And they found a number of different, they don't know exactly how to read it. It does have a lot of different types of images on it. Some of them appear astrological. Some of them appear historical or mythology based. It's an incredible piece of history that will take archaeologists years and years to unravel. But they've dated that as far back as 20,000 years. So the culture that created that could be the same culture that was at the heart of the myth when it happened. So there were people here when all of this occurred. Some of them actually survived. Now, the caves just on the other side of the water from mm -hmm. what's now Okan, some of the oldest artifacts ever found in Mesoamerica were found in those caves, which would have been the kind of caves that they would. And those caves had natural water streams running through them. Mm -hmm. so some of the oldest artifacts that they found were in those caves, which would have made sense because those would have been caves that they would have taken refuge in when everything else had burned. As I said, it was a 12-year journey for me to try and just understand the story. Then the amazing fun of trying to turn that into really fun characters with really great quirks, a lot of traditions and, and nuances, even down mm -hmm. to the cigar smoking uh, ritual, the sunset cigar smoking ritual, yep. was a tradition on my boat. When I was first writing or working on some of this, in the early stages, I was living on a 50-foot sailing yacht. Okay. As you mentioned earlier, I had a charter captain's license. I used to take people out on, on sails and, and trips on the boat. I was a deep water diver. I went on some of these dives. I've been uh, diving with wrecks and sharks. But I was fascinated with the whole story. And so I would oftentimes be kind of recounting all of this while we were living on the boat and kind of looking for all of that adventure. So one of the traditions I had with some of my buddies on the boat was sunset hour was always cocktail cigar hour. So no matter what was going on, we would, you know, we would slow down, we would stop, we would basically ease up the, the sails so we didn't have to work so hard and so that we could all enjoy a cocktail and a sunset and a, and a cigar. And so we, we always had a stock of cigars on the boat, a stock of brandy on the boat, and we decided to put that tradition in the book as well. That was really cool too. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about the book that I have not asked you? It's a, just a fun book. It was. It's got action, adventure, history, mythology, humor, romance, paranormal. I don't know how you can find something more balanced. And ironically, by the time I finished it, my son was well into being an adult. But it was always meant to be the kind of experience that a father and a son could enjoy together and remember. Because I said, I want to take this memorable history, turn it into a memorable experience that others could relate to. Of all the books I've written, that one was by far and away the most fun. 
So you said it was for your son. Did he, what did he think of it when he read it? My son has not read it yet. It's been sitting what? on his desk dedicated to him for years. He went through a divorce a couple, about last year. He's been going through trying to rediscover his dating life. And it, I just can't seem to compete with his dating life right now. <laughs> so I know he'll get to it eventually. He promises me. But he never read the final book. So uh, I'm going to have to tell him I had to confess that to the world on a podcast and just to give him a little bit of guilt factor. Give him the nudge to read it. <laughs> I'm not above that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> if I know my son, Joshua, he's going to, and I can't wait for him to read it because I think it's going to surprise him as to mm -hmm. how much he it and how much it pulls him back. Because I think he's going to recognize the cigar scenes. He's going to recognize mm -hmm. the He's going to recognize the, the scene at the end of the book. He'll recognize a lot of the things that, you know, when he was growing up, I'd be talking about, you know, the, mm -hmm. the ancient history of Maya and civilizations and lost cities. And so he's going to recognize a lot of it. And I think that he'll ultimately be super thrilled when he finally does read it. I'm telling that I was forced to basically confess that he hadn't read it. My wife has, and it's her favorite book, too. Now, the That's other awesome. books... Just as a quick segue, I, I deal with artificial intelligence, politics, modern religion, also contemporary thrillers, both of them award-winning. All of my books require years of research. One of the events that sparked the artificial intelligence series was, uh, now in my career, I was in, involved in a lot of technology, including early stage AI. But mm -hmm. I discovered that a program had escaped the NSA spy labs at Sandia. It wasn't lost, stolen, or broken. It escaped. When I figured out how a spy program could escape the NSA, and what did they design it to do that needed that really nifty stealth technology, they sent two FBI agents to my door. Oh, no. <laughs> they were not happy at all that I had figured out something they thought for sure was supposed to be top secret. I was giddy. They, what they didn't expect was my snarky attitude. I was like, yes, I did it. I figured it out. Oh, man, this is so, so cool. I can't wait to tell all my friends, hey, come on, boys, admit it. You wouldn't be here long. I must have been right. Just admit I'm right. Just admit it. I won't tell your boss. Just tell me I'm right. Just tell me. They looked at each other. They went pale. I got the we are not amused speech. <laughs> and then my wife came home and I got the, there's two FBI agents in my dining room. What the hell did you do speech? So mm -hmm. it was an interesting day, and that was another one of those experiences where I said, okay, I have just got to find a way to write about this. That became the genesis of the Artificial Intelligence series. That program actually turned into a character into the series and all of the capabilities that it had, and it's now talking about how that's transitioned to modern AI and how terrifying that can be, particularly in the hands of governments, spies, drug lords, crime lords, sociopathic billionaires, mm -hmm. corrupt politicians, and we all can name at least one of Diva. So yep. it makes for a very, very fascinating story. Well, I mean, I haven't read the other two books, but if The Curse of Cortez is anything to go off of, you've done a fascinating job and a Thank terrific so job. Before we close out, do you have anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Explore. Research, read. I just think the world is so fascinating in so many ways. I couldn't imagine not having enough material to write books forever. I love to do the research, and that's where I get my inspiration. But find what, what gives you the inspiration and find it and get inspired to do something. And even if it takes you years, don't worry about it. 
just enjoy the process and enjoy the learning. And I'm just thankful that you invited me on and to talk about this amazing experience. Most of the time, people want to talk about AI. I love it when somebody wants to talk about the history and the archaeology and the, and the experience of Cortez. So thank you, Lindsay, so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. We will have a link to purchase your own copy of The Curse of Cortez in our show notes. I highly encourage all of our listeners to check it out. And on that note, thank you so much again, Guy, for being on the show. And I'm Lindsay, and we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.